Welcome to Christchurch Manchester Sermon Podcast. CCM is one church that meets every Sunday in various locations across Manchester. For more information about who we are or about our Sunday meetings, please visit www.christchurchmanchester.com. Good morning. Uh, some of you, the observant among you, will notice that I recently, this week, I've rearranged my office because last week the, uh, the light was behind my head. And as I watched back the Facebook Live video, I realised that whenever I moved, I either went like really in focus or just completely in the dark. I've resolved that. So there you go. Probably the first office reorganisation of many over the next few months. Um, but why don't you turn with me to Isaiah chapter 25. Um, hopefully you've got a paper Bible with you. Uh, we're moving back to the paper Bibles now, aren't we? Now we're all in our homes. But uh, turn with me to Isaiah 25. And just to anticipate your first question, if you've been following along with our Isaiah series, um, why have we jumped from Isaiah 12 last week all the way to Isaiah 25 this week? Well, uh, I could answer that question by telling you to go and read Isaiah 13 to 24, where what you'll find is uh, an entire list of prophecies against hostile nations, which have been systematically trying to attack and destroy Israel and Judah, which is where Isaiah is. And although there is a time and place for the study of those passages, uh, this is probably not it on a Sunday morning when I've got 15 minutes. But these passages can be summed up in two sentences. God will not stand for injustice and God will punish those who refuse to worship him. It's sobering, but it's a biblical truth. This is what these two passages, uh, the, the passages between Isaiah 13 and 24 are illustrating, which brings us to Isaiah 25. And what we're about to read in Isaiah 25 is kind of a hymn, a hymn of praise to the Lord, but it can again be summed up in one very short sentence, which is this. We trust a mighty God. Now, uh, instead of reading the whole of Isaiah 25, I'm just going to read three verses to you. Isaiah 25 verses one to three. Why don't you follow along in your Bible as I read this? Lord, you are my God. I will exalt you and praise your name. For in perfect faithfulness, you have done wonderful things, things planned long ago. You have made the city a heap of rubble, the fortified town a ruin, the foreigner's stronghold a city no more. It will never be rebuilt. Therefore, strong peoples will honour you. Cities of ruthless nations will revere you. We'll pause there. There's so much more to Isaiah 25. And I would urge you to go and read the rest of the chapter yourself and see more of this incredible uh, prophecy that Isaiah has for the future. But for now, we're going to think about those three verses and what they tell us about how mighty our God is. Isaiah tells us in just those three verses that God is mighty and powerful and strong and specifically that God is mighty in his planning and mighty in his power. Let's have a look first uh, at the way that Isaiah talks about God's planning, how God is mighty in his planning. Verse one says, Lord, you are my God. I will exalt and praise your name for in perfect faithfulness, you have done wonderful things, things planned long ago. I wonder how often you think about God having planned everything from long ago. And I wonder what your experience is in your own life of planning. I don't know about you, but I always find that things go a lot better if they've been planned beforehand. 
I was always told at school to plan my essays before I wrote them. And to be really honest with you, I never did. And it wasn't until I got to university that I realized the actual benefit of essay planning. And as I've advanced through my kind of academic career, increasingly I realized that if you don't plan properly, disaster is, is ahead. Okay, things go better if you plan them. And it, it, it works on a practical level as well. Several years ago, back when Claire and I had two rabbits, we now have one, but that's a different story. When we had two rabbits, I built a bespoke rabbit run uh, that was designed to fit onto the hutch that we had for our rabbits, okay? Now, uh, I'm not really a handyman at all, so I knew that if I didn't plan it properly, it wouldn't go well. I planned it right down to the centimetre. Every piece was perfectly planned, and as a result, it worked out really well. But it only worked out well because it had been carefully planned. Isaiah tells us here that, God, uh, that everything God has done has been planned from the very beginning, that nothing occurs which God has not permitted, which God cannot incorporate into his plan. Nothing is a surprise to God. Later on in the book of Isaiah, uh, where we jump ahead actually of the bit of Isaiah we're going to read in this series, in Isaiah 40, Isaiah, uh, the prophet, the, the author says this, have you not known, have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. Gives us some insight into the plans that God has, which starts at the beginning of everything. And I, I want to say end, but don't necessarily end. This is just plans that God has for the whole of eternity. God has planned everything in the grand spectrum of eternity. And as Christians, we get to trust that he is wise and mighty enough to know what he's doing. In Romans 11, the Apostle Paul says something quite similar about the wisdom of God. He says, oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Now, what I think the Apostle Paul captures really beautifully in that verse is both the frustration and the freedom of trusting in a mighty God. The frustration is there because all of us like to be in control, don't we? We all, on some level, like to be in control of what's going on around us. We like to be in control of our own destiny. We like to be in control of what's going on in the world. And yet, actually, what this verse reminds us, and what we're reminded if we look at the world around us, is that we are not actually in control. And that can be quite frustrating. Hence, you get this cry from Paul, oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. Oh, I don't understand how God does all that he does. And yet there is also great freedom. Although this reminds us that we are not in control, isn't it better that someone is in control who knows what they're actually doing? Imagine that somebody picks you up and plunks you behind the wheel of a car. Okay, now many of us who are engaged in this service this morning would know what to do in that situation, right? We'd know how to drive that car, to get from A to B without much trouble. Most any, any of us who've done driving lessons or, or have, a driving lessons, uh, have a driving lessons would know what to do. But now imagine that somebody picks you up and puts you behind the controls of a plane. Far fewer of us on the global scale would have any idea where to start. Now imagine that somebody picks you up and puts you behind the controls of a space shuttle. That group of us who would know what to do gets even smaller. And you know what, although it can often be very frustrating, there is something very freeing about handing controls over to somebody who knows what they're doing. As a passenger on a plane, it is helpful for me to know that the pilot knows what they're doing and it's okay that I don't. There's something very freeing about knowing that God is at the controls of eternity, that it's not up to me to fix 
everything, that actually I'm not completely in charge of my own destiny. It's not on me to learn how to control everything. The person who's at the controls knows what they're doing. Or as uh, Christian musician Glenn Packiam puts it, I am not in control, but I am deeply loved by the one who is. In the same way that it's freeing for me as a passenger to hand control over to a pilot, it is freeing to hand control of eternity over to God. Or as Corrie ten Boom put it in one of my favourite Christian quotes ever, never be afraid to trust an unknown future to a known God. A God who is in control, a mighty God. God is mighty and wise in his planning. And Isaiah goes on to show us that God is, is mighty in his power as well. When you think of the word mighty, you probably think of power. In fact, uh, the word mighty means powerful because of size, basically. That's what mighty means. And Isaiah here describes God as incredibly powerful beyond understanding. He says this in verse two, you have made the city a heap of rubble, the fortified town a heap of ruin, the foreigner's stronghold a city no more. It will never be rebuilt. Now, this kind of military imagery, this war imagery is really common in Isaiah, partly because uh, in Isaiah's time, the people of Judah, where Isaiah's from, were constantly at war with other nations. And this idea of a ruined city has already come up in Isaiah several times, most recently in uh, chapter 24, where it says this, the ruined city lies desolate. The entrance to every house is barred. Now, this is once again, uh, we get a lot of these in Isaiah. It's a metaphor that contains quite a lot of truth. It's a metaphor that incorporates real things into its kind of imagery. Isaiah is describing a metaphorical city, one which is the culmination of all of the arrogant nations of the earth which opposed God. And you can read about those in Isaiah 13 to 24. But the destruction that's coming upon these arrogant nations appears to also include the original Jerusalem. If you read Isaiah 22, it's a prophecy about how God is going to bring punishment upon Jerusalem, his own people for rebelling against him. This is an image of God tearing down sin and injustice in the world. You have made the city a heap of rubble, the fortified town a heap of ruin. Isaiah is speaking about the incredible might and power of God. He's saying God is mighty enough to collapse even the strongest strongholds. Now, of all the buildings in the world, of all the secure buildings in the world, it's pretty widely considered that Fort Knox in Kentucky in the USA is the most secure building in the world. Okay, now the reason for this is because it holds about half of the American gold reserves. So it makes sense that they would make it quite secure. But most of the security measures at Fort Knox are, for obvious reasons, secret. But it's, it's suspected that between the perimeter fence and the building itself, there are landmines, electric fences, and even lasers which trigger machine guns. There are also about 23,000 soldiers on site at any one time. And if you managed somehow, by some kind of magic, to get to the vault in the very centre, you'd discover a steel and concrete door which weighs more than 20 tonnes. And just to put icing on the cake, no single person knows how to get into the vault. Instead, a bunch of different people who don't know one another's codes would have to input their codes separately in order to get into this vault. It's extremely secure. Fort Knox lives up to its name. It's a fortress. In the ancient world, in Isaiah's setting, the security and the fortifications of a settlement were of paramount importance. Great measures would be taken to ensure that walls were impenetrable. 
that riches were stored somewhere safe and that fighters were well-trained and well-equipped. To destroy a fortress or a fortified city to the point where it was unable to be rebuilt required massive, massive military strength. The Babylonians who attacked Jerusalem about 150 years after Isaiah's first prophecies managed to pretty much ruin Jerusalem. But even literal, the city, city of Jerusalem was able to be partially rebuilt after the people of Judah returned from exile. You can read about that in the prophet Haggai. Here, Isaiah uses familiar and quite on-the-nose imagery to illustrate the immensity of God's power. See, the Babylonians lay siege for years to Jerusalem and eventually destroyed it. Yet God is able to reduce a fortified city to rubble in a moment. Now. In your life, there may not be any literal cities or city walls which you would like to see toppled, apart from perhaps that huge chunk of wall in Piccadilly Gardens, which is just really ugly, which I hear is going to be torn down at some point. But there probably aren't any literal cities and walls in your life you want to see toppled. But actually, as believers in God, in a mighty God, this should still be a huge comfort to us. He is powerful enough to topple city walls, but thankfully his power isn't limited to toppling city walls. When Isaiah says, you've made the city a heap of rubble, he's speaking about and speaking to the same God who created everything. The same God who led the Israelites out of Egypt. The same God who delivered them into the promised land and who toppled the walls of Jericho. But the same God who also used unlikely leaders to accomplish huge military victories in the time of the judges. The same God who made the nation of Israel a force to be reckoned with and increased their power, who granted King Solomon the wisdom to reign fairly, who caused a stone altar soaked with water to burn to ashes in the, times of, in the time of Elijah, who used the superpowers of Assyria and Babylon to punish the people of Israel and Judah for their rebellion against him as a reminder of his power and how God takes sin seriously, and the God who rescued them once again out of exile mercifully allowing a remnant to continue to worship him. And when we think about the power of God, the God who is able to topple walls in relation to our church, to Christchurch Manchester, we think of a God who was able to build CCM from a group of just a few people into several hundred worshippers across the city in several different locations. And we thank God for the miracles he has worked in our church. In the global church, we think of God who is exponentially growing his church Weirdly, it seems to be in the places where it is most difficult to be a Christian, where the church is exponentially growing. This is what God is doing. This is God's power. And when I think about the power of God in my own life, I think of God who's given Claire and me the strength to battle through some really tough mental health crises. I think of the God who has protected my family when the entire political situation in Burundi, where they used to live, suddenly deteriorated to the point where it became very unsafe to be an expat just overnight. I think of the God who somehow, despite me being a very middle class boy from Sussex, used me to lead people to Jesus in prison ministry for a year. I think of the God who time and time again has provided financially for us and for me through random gifts from random people at random times when money's been really tight. And I think of the God who most recently opened a door for me to be able to study for a PhD, which I hope will really bless the church in the future. But even more than all of those things, the power of God illustrated in the Bible, the power of God illustrated in the church, the power of God illustrated in my life. When I think of the God who is able to make the city a heap of rubble, who is mighty in his power, I think about the God who in the person of Jesus Christ 
voluntarily laid it all down. The one who was known as the Prince of Peace. I want to read to you from Philippians chapter 2. I'm just going to share an image with you on my screen, hopefully, which shows you this passage, which I'm going to be reading from the New Revised Standard Version, that says this. Let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited, but emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, being born in human likeness and being found in human form. He humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God also highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bend in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. In the person of Jesus Christ, we see this ultimate, incredible, mighty power exercised in perfect humility. In our world, we don't often see those two things go hand in hand. But it takes great power to topple a city wall. And it takes great humility to choose to lay that power down. In Jesus, the Son of God and God himself, we have both of these things, power and humility, in equal measure. Now, I've been intentionally vague about exactly what Jesus laid down. The Greek word kenoto, uh, the, the emptying of himself, is really quite uh, ambiguous here. We're not quite clear on exactly what Jesus laid aside. But let me ask you this question. Would you expect somebody who has everything to lay it all down? We don't see this in our world very often, yet this is what we see in Jesus, choosing to become human, possessing all of the privileges of equality with God, all of the things that means, total power, total might, total divine privilege. Yet he didn't see those privileges as something to cling to. Rather, he chose to become a perfectly humble human being. Filled with the Holy Spirit, fully man and fully God. He lived a perfect life in perfect obedience to a, in a perfect relationship with God the Father. And he died on a cross paying for the sins of the world so that anyone who believes in him could be made clean and righteous before God. And he rose from the dead. And Philippians 2 goes on. This is the Apostle Paul speaking. He says, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above all other names, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bend in heaven and on earth and under the earth. God lifted him up and he is seated at the right hand of God. And Isaiah says something similar in verse three of the passage we read. It says, therefore, strong peoples will honor you. Cities of ruthless nations will revere you. In chapters 13 to 24 of Isaiah, the prophet speaks of the impending judgment which will come upon the nations which are hostile to Israel. All of these nations have completely rejected the idea of worshipping God and they've built their own gods instead and sought their own glory. And they've sought to destroy God's people. You can imagine exactly who Isaiah has in mind when he says strong peoples will honour you. Cities of ruthless nations will revere you. God will be worshipped. The perfect plan that he has for eternity begins, continues and ends with him being worshipped. A day will come when Jesus returns to judge the earth and every knee will bend before the King of Kings. In Jesus, God gives us the opportunity to bow the knee now, to choose to bow the knee before him.
but it's actually so much more than that that we get to do. God gives us the opportunity not just to bow to him, but to be born again into his family, to worship him from the comfort and security of a relationship with a loving father, to worship him not as a far off, distant royal subject, but as a member of the royal household whose position has been paid for by God's selfless, humble and obedient son, Jesus Christ. We trust a mighty God, a God who is mighty in his planning. Nothing happens which he has not permitted. Nothing surprises him. And we can trust that as he sits at the controls of eternity, he knows what he is doing. And God is mighty in his power. He is worthy of worship. He is capable of toppling fortresses. And a day will come when every knee will bow before him. Through faith in Jesus, he gives us the incredible opportunity to worship him from within his family.